Good morning, everybody. You may have noticed, certainly our 930 crowd did, but we have trucks and heavy equipment on the Fondren Church parking lot today in and around us, and some of those trucks and some of that heavy equipment uh, has the word Hollywood on it. And no, they're not here to do a feature film on me, but they are doing a film on the life of Chucky Mullins. So Ole Miss fans, SEC fans, uh, be glad of that. We'll update you on as they make that movie and as it's produced to put out there. I think it's going to be really cool. They ask us for our lot on this Sunday and a Sunday coming in November, and they'll be here for several days out of the week. We're making a little money off of it that we're going to put on the gym renovation, so it's a good thing. Uh, Good-looking people coming in and out of the parking lot in the truck. I was like, it's, that's, it's not Founder Church people. These are really good-looking folks. But I think eventually, just pray with me, because I think eventually with my good looks and glamorous style, they'll ask me to have some part in the film. I think over time. But isn't that cool? Uh, we live in, the, or we, we worship here in the hippest part of, of Jackson, and so things like this happen. It's really cool to have the, the film. And what, what's also cool, and as an added measure, I think they made contact with Jeff and I first on this, but they came to the office last week, and the Vanderbilt tight end, the actual guy who played that was part of the tackle and the injury of Chucky Mullins, he was here. He was hanging out uh, right here on site. So it's really cool. We'll update you, as I said. On that, will we finish out today a five-part series? This is the fifth installment of a five-part series entitled "Bad Ideas About God." We've looked at grandfather God and guilt God and vending machine God and Sunday school God, and today we look at this very idea: God, my imaginary friend. Now, think if if we believe, if we seek to follow what Scripture teaches, what God calls us to, then our relationship with God is to to exist, and it's to be the most important relationship that we have. But think about that, compare and contrast with other relationships that you have. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, I'm a friend, uh, other titles I presume, but I don't doubt those relationships. Ever thought about that? I don't doubt that Susan exists. I don't, I don't wonder, walk around wondering, do my kids exist? But what about this relationship that's supposed to be the most important relationship. There's a passage in Matthew 28, 17. It's not our text today. We'll get there in a moment. But there's a passage in Matthew 28, 17 that says this. It says that when they saw him, this is all it says, Matthew 28, 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I love that. I love that because I believe worshipers have doubts and doubters long to worship. And God has made us that way. And Jesus didn't, he didn't draw a line and say, all right, worshipers over here and doubters over here, right? Like the sheep and the goats and the wheat and the tare. He didn't do that. He said, go. He said, you're my disciples. I want you to go and make disciples. I want you to learn from me. And I would hope that Fondren Church, as we finish out a series and move into our future, I would hope as we deal with these bad ideas about God, and replace them with right and lofty, noble ideas about God, that we would give each other a green light to express our doubts, to have honest questions, and to learn. Don't you think we'll be a better community if we're able to do that? Now, I want to start with this this morning, that this truth that everybody hopes. In fact, it's so important, so fundamental that I want you to say it with me, okay? I'm going to say one, two, three, and I want you to say those two words, everybody hopes, if you believe that, okay? One, two, three. One, two, three. 
Everybody hopes. You and I, everybody, everybody hopes. We are by nature wishing creatures. We have wishes, things that we long for, things that we hope in. We have wishbones and wishing wells and make-a-wish foundation. We are wishing creatures. We teach our kids to make a wish while they blow out candles on the cake and toss coins into a fountain. We tell stories about genies that jump out of bottles and help make our wishes come true. We are a lot about wishing. I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I wish it would rain. I, I wish you were here. I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl who looked good. I would call her. I wish I had a rabbit in a hat with a bat. Right? We have wishes. We are we are wishing creatures. Everybody hopes. Skilo hopes, and you and I hope, right? We all, we all are wishing creatures. It's late at night. Americans have their television on. The screen is aglow with infomercials. And there is a product, there's a gadget, there's a gizmo that you need because you have wishes and you hope. Everybody hopes. We're wishful creatures. And you're wishing, and guess what? They have what you're wishing for. This body-shaping apparatus, this set of steak knives, this, this juicer, this hair growth product, this hair removal, this age-defying beauty cream. And the, you, they, you're hooked. You think, I need it. Well, it's going to cost too much. And uh, I'll just pick it up at the store. But no, 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 no. Oh, no. It's two easy payments, right? It's a money-back guarantee. It's not available in stores. It's a limited time only. It's an exclusive offer. You have to act now, call now, call or click today. Operators are standing by, right? Every, have you never noticed that about an infomercial? Every objection that you put in your mind, they addressed. You ever thought about that? They know that everybody hopes. And here's what I want to say this morning. I just want to, I just want to put it out there because it's healthy. Everything that you hope for, every situation, and every circumstance, and every someone is going to wear out, fade away, let you down, depart. It's not going to fully satisfy. Because we're never completely satisfied. And there is a difference a very fundamental difference that as a follower of Jesus I would like for you to get today. There's a difference between hoping for something and hoping in someone. And long ago, a man named Peter who was among the twelve, among the eleven that stayed faithful, but rode a roller coaster of emotions that vacillated because when they saw him, what? They worshipped him. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And one of those worshipers, one of those doubters, was a man named Peter. And Peter, in the reign of an emperor named Nero. Now, if you think today's politics are tough, go back A.D. 54 to 60. Now, it was a brief reign by Nero. It was a brief reign, but it was a brutal reign. He was an oppressor. He was a tyrant. And for fun, he persecuted Christians. And Peter writes to them, and he this is beyond the scope or magnitude of this sermon, but if you want to learn about following Jesus amidst the political climate, read 1 Peter and read commentaries on 1 Peter and read the background of 1 Peter. 
It's solid advice, and you may not like the advice, but it's pretty sound about how we are to follow Jesus in the midst of a political culture. And these early Christians were mistreated, they were tortured, they were enslaved, they were imprisoned, they were treated badly by their employers, they were roughed up by law enforcement officials, and Nero reigned over it all, killing Christians for blood sport. And Peter writes to them, Peter, this follower of Jesus, Peter, who heard Jesus say one time, in this world you will have trouble. In this world, Jesus was essentially saying that everything that you hope for, every late night infomercial promise, every gadget, every gizmo, every situation, circumstance, every someone that you put your trust in is going to let you down. It's going to wear out. In this world, you will have trouble. But here's what Jesus said. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, does that seem like a contradiction? In this world, you'll have trouble. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus is saying that there's some stuff that's going to happen on the outside, but it doesn't have to adversely affect you on the inside. Don't be afraid and don't be troubled. It's the very words Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 14, before he says this in 1 Peter 3, 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. If we could keep the passage up, there's a phrase I'd love for you to circle. Being prepared, here it is, to make a defense. He's not saying get defensive. He's not saying get loud. In church, there's a difference between bold and loud. But he's saying being prepared to what? To make a defense to anyone, and here's the phrase, who ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I love the word reason. Last week we talked about the church growing and cultivating our interior life and specifically the life of the mind. I stood up here and made a claim that many would dispute, but I said science and faith are not opposed to each other. Isaiah, long ago in Isaiah 1.18 said the following, Come now. Come now, let us reason together. The Apostle Paul in Acts 17, in a religiously plural and multicultural society, he he says this, he reasoned, Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and giving evidence. Do you remember what we said last week, Paul, from 1 Corinthians 13? When I was a child, I, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I what? I reasoned like a child. And the invitation is for us, as followers of Jesus, is to grow up, to put away childish things and to grow up. And we do that by how we speak and how we think and how we reason. And I wonder, long ago I asked myself this question. Now you figured out how you can enter into this story. But long ago in college I asked myself this question, can I do that? If called on, can I reason with people from the Scripture explaining and giving evidence. A false dichotomy that exists in the world, in the church today, is that there's, there's reason and there's belief. But as we grow, Jesus wants to show us that there are reasons for our belief. And the invitation here, in the context with these early Christians, is this 
this challenge, this inspirational challenge is that while in this world you have trouble, do not let your hearts be troubled. It's going to be difficult, but I want you to live differently. How you engage with other people, how you walk in this world, how you engage politically, how you interact with each other. I want it to be so different. In fact, here it says with gentleness and respect, I want it to be so different that people will, listen, people will actually come up to you and they will ask you, what's happening in your heart? What makes your life different? As a 20-year-old, I ask myself that question from that passage on the life of Paul. Can I do that? And Peter says, we need to. To follow Jesus is for us to cultivate our minds and our hearts and to be at a place that our lives are changing so drastically that people will see our difference. Now, the same difficulty that happens to your neighbor can happen to you. Have you noticed that? You won't find any promise. No, you'll find preachers and authors who take the Bible and twist it to make it say something that it was never intended to say, but you'll find no substantiation in all of God's Word that would say that we don't have trouble or that because you're walking with Him, your life is going to be safer. The rain, Jesus taught, it falls on the just and on the unjust. You will have trouble, but don't let that trouble Don't let it penetrate your heart. Sanctify Christ in your heart. Set Christ apart. And as you do, people will ask you, what is this reason for the hope that is in you? And so today, as we talk about this bad idea about God, this idea of God, do you exist or are you just like an imaginary friend? Now, we won't do this because it's an embarrassing question, but if we were to ask you, hey, raise your hand if when you were little you had an imaginary friend. A lot of hands would go up, right? Because there's something about that in childhood. The imagination, right? We stoke the the coals. We fan the flames of make-believe. Why? Because everybody hopes. Why? Because we're wishing creatures. But it creeps in. Because you're like me. You don't ask if your spouse exists or your roommate exists or if your parents exist or your kids exist. But does God exist or is he make-believe? Be ready. As you follow Jesus and walk in His light and His love and learn from Him, be ready, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Come now, let us reason together. I want this morning to give you two ways to reason. Two ways to be ready. Two two arenas, two areas to think about as you follow Jesus. The first is just the existence of creation. It said this in Acts that, you, you live, you move, and you have your being. Aren't you glad of that? Like, you, you, are, you are created. And you live in the splendor and the majesty of creation. You're with friends, and you're hiking the Black Hills of South Dakota. And you round a mountain, and you look up, and there it is. In all the glory, in all the detail... There are these beautiful, giant-sized faces. In fact, the noses, you don't know it, you're just enamored with it all, but later you'll learn that the noses themselves of these four giant faces on the slab of this mountain and this marble, the the noses are 20 feet long. How would you like to have your nose 20 feet where thousands, hundreds of thousands of people could look up at your 20-foot nose? And you see... These faces of Washington and Jefferson 
and Roosevelt and Lincoln. And you're in awe, you're so in awe that you're left speechless. Each face is the equivalent of a six-story building. If you scope that out, each individual would be 460 feet tall, proportionally. You're left speechless, and you, of course, it's 2016, so you take a selfie, and you talk to friends, but I ask you, what would your conclusion, what sort of conclusions would you draw about the origin of those four giant faces on the side of that mountain? Would you conclude that it was chance that slowly, over time, that wind and certain forces carved those four giant faces in great meticulous detail on the side of that mountain? Would, you, would anybody in this room conclude that? Nobody. Come, let us reason together. You would realize that there was a sculpture, a sculptor, who sculpted for 14 years. It was opened in 1941 for people to enjoy as a monument, as a display of a very creative act. And the three, there's a three set of design elements at play there. Forethought, planning, and intention. You're flying home from your trip to South Dakota 32,000 feet above the Earth's surface, and you hear a strange noise in the aircraft. And your airline pretzels provide you little comfort food. And you begin to think of all the many moving parts, the complex system of interdependent parts that must function properly. They all must be there, and they must all be in sync the engine and the hydraulics and the air pressure all working together. And if something is missing or something goes awry, even a small piece, it could prove to be fatal to the Boeing 747 and every life on board. What do you conclude about that aircraft? There are elements of design that engineers put into it. Forethought, planning, and intention. Scripture says that you're woven. You're woven together. Before you were born, you're woven together. I believe that. I believe in the sanctity of life. I believe in God's forethought and planning intention in your life. You're woven together intricately, Scripture tells us. And doesn't science prove that? You're woven together. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Forethought, planning, intention. God's design. Last Sunday, I remember looking out and seeing a friend of mine who's an eye surgeon. I remember thinking, he's a little smarter than I am. Remember when you were a kid and you learned head, shoulders, knees and toes, eyes, ears, mouth and nose, right? We teach our kids that song because it's fun. We want to occupy them. We want them to learn basics of the anatomy, right? Head and shoulders, knees and toes, eyes, ears, mouth and nose. But my eye doctor friend, he knows a lot more about the eye than those kids do or the adult teaching the kids that song, right? The, the cornea and the retina and the ducts and all that go in to that. Your body, you're created. John Mayer's right. Your body is a wonderland. You're a highly complex, sophisticated, interdependent system where things must function well. And do you know in this sermon series and study, and not only am I finding that really smart people believe in God, I'm finding 
that atheists, those who don't want to believe in God, are saying this is hard because of forethought, intention, and design. And just as nobody would conclude that about the side of a mountain in South Dakota, Mount Rushmore, and no one would conclude that on an airplane, that it all just came together, nor would you with the watch on your wrist. Does anybody wear watches anymore? You would not conclude that because of forethought, planning, and design. There is the existence of creation, and guess what? You and I, as humans, as women and men, we are the crown jewel. We are the crown jewel of that. There is the existence of creation. Come, let us reason. You have been created. You have been created by a creator, a highly intelligent creator, with a design, with forethought, and with planning, who has a plan for your life. Let us reason together the existence of creation. You, as created being, you who live and move and have your being. There's the existence of creation, firstly. And secondly, as we reason together, I want to up on a point to what I simply want to call today everything about Jesus. Do you know that I have, at points in my life, gone through some, some level of agnosticism where I've tried not to believe? Because sometimes we're confronted, when we're confronted with Christ, we are uh, not to plagiarize from Al Gore, but there are some inconvenient truths. But think about the life of Jesus. Was he crazy? Was he a compulsive liar? Was he a sympathetic figure? Did all this happen just by dumb luck? Was the timing just right where Roman infrastructure was good and Greek philosophy was undermining the gods and stability was there and anxiety, it was high and gullibility was strong? Was just, did just everything work out to where Jesus could be who Jesus was and claim to be who he was and teach what he taught and do what he did and for us to be here today? A sympathetic figure? It's hard to believe. Dumb luck? Hard to believe. Compulsive liar? Doesn't add up. Crazy man? Not a chance. When we make claims... Have you ever noticed this? When you make claims, you've got to back it up. Are there any hidden tapes? Do people know stuff about you? Can you be trusted? Jesus was a teacher. And if you come to Fondren Church, hardly a Sunday goes by where I don't say he was the master teacher. And Jesus, as a teacher, taught us truth. He wanted you and I to walk in truth. And Jesus said this. It's one of the most famous phrases ever uttered. The truth will set you free. Mark Twain, on a journey to discover truth himself, he, got, he pulled together two different Bible verses. And he said, a lie is an abomination to the Lord and a very present help in time of trouble. It's not just Mark Twain you and it's me because who lies who tells lies who lives lies who struggles with the truth who deceives others and deceives themselves you know who does I do <gasps> that's no shocking revelation and you do and according to Jesus we all do and I love what Jesus teaches about the truth 
you go to pick up your car after a tune-up, and the mechanic tells you your car is in perfect condition. A little touch-up here, you're good to go. Later that day, your brakes don't work. Your brakes, and you realize you're out of brake fluid, and there's a missing brake part. You go back to your technician, your ASE, automated service technician, and he says to you, hey, I didn't, I didn't want you to be offended. I wanted this to be a safe place where everybody and every car is loved and accepted. What would your response be? You would be furious. You go to the doctor and he tells you, you are a magnificent physical specimen. You have the body of an Olympic athlete. Later that day, while climbing the stairs, your heart gives out. You learn that you have severely clogged arteries. You're one jelly donut away from the Grim Reaper. You go back to that doctor and you're furious. But the doctor's response to you is, oh, I didn't want to offend you. I wanted this to be a safe place where everybody feels love and acceptance. What I love about the Jesus is that his life and his teachings point us to the truth. And it's no, the, the objective is not some fantasy land ego boost for you or me. Because when God works in our lives, He does business with us. It hurts. But for us to walk into freedom that Jesus provides, it's got to hurt. I know some of you, and I'm walking with you on your journey. And sometimes we sit down and we break bread or have coffee or something and you're telling me your story as if I can't relate to your story. As if I don't have sin and deception in my own life. And Jesus is doing a work on me and when I get exposed for my stuff, it hurts. But it's the truth that sets me free. It's the falsehood and the de deception that's hard. And the call is to walk in that truth. Jesus' teachings, here's what I love. Come reason with me. Everything about Jesus draws me to Him. Come reason with me. Everywhere the teachings of Jesus have gone, people get better. There's the advancement of human rights. There's the equality of women. There's the care for children. There's the breakdown of class inequality. There's the improvement of education. Have you ever struggled with hypocrisy? Have you ever not come to church or gone through a stretch where you don't want to worship because there's so many hypocrites? And when I've gone through periods of doubt in my own life, I've thought, is this the result? The bad stuff that people do in the name of religion, is this the result of the teachings of Jesus or an aberration of the teachings of Jesus? Do you see that? And that's a very important and very helpful distinction. I, I say this a lot. If anybody that comes to our church, I want you to know this. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's one of the greatest apologetics. It's one of the greatest ways to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. It's the greatest sermon ever preached. And Jesus talks. He talks about salt and light and lust and adultery and anger and murder and revenge and enemies. And he says these brilliant and beautiful things that would make our world better. Jesus draws us into truth. Come let us reason together. The existence of creation, He made you. Everything about Jesus, His truth, His teachings. A few others before we wrap this up. Next, beyond this, is just 
what I'm learning more and more and emboldened by, do you know that smart people believe? There's a man named Francis Collins. You may not have ever heard of him because he doesn't play SEC football. But Francis Collins was the head, dig this, he was the head of the Human Genome Project. He's now the national director of the Institute of Health. He was an atheist. He is now a devoted follower of Jesus. Smart people believe. The Nobel Prize is awarded annually in six fields. Economics, mathematics, literature, chemistry, whatever I'm not mentioning, but different fields. Peace, peace is a field. Peace, they, they award, one, award one for peace. All these are women and men every year that stand in a different stratosphere intellectually. And from 1900 to 2000, 66% of the Nobel Prize winners are followers of Jesus. Smart people believe. I tell people when I have a chance to reason with them that I've tried not to believe in Jesus. I've tried to believe that he was crazy, that he was a compulsive liar, that he was a sympathetic figure, that it was all just dumb luck. But thinking with my mind leads me to believe in who he is and who he claimed to be. Beyond his teachings and the fact that smart people believe there are precise predictions, 353 to be exact, that predicted his arrival, they are precise. Not beyond the precise predictions were his audacious claims. Could you imagine if you stood up today and you made a claim that you were the son of God? How do you pull that off? How does that work? Like, think about it. Man, you got to start doing stuff. you got to start talking differently. Let me just say this. You can't be you. And I don't know all of you, okay? I see some guests. You can't be you. When you make a claim that you're the son of God, it's all got to change. It's got to be really different. Because people are going to see if you can back that up. And you better be ready. And Jesus made these audacious claims around the Sanhedrin and the religious people who, who were smart, who had every reason in the world to disprove it. But so powerful and so convincing. Beyond the teachings, the fact that smart people believe, the precise predictions, the audacious claims, is the unstoppable story. When Jesus was born as a baby in a manger to an uncultured and unrefined family. He had no ties to Herod, to the Sanhedrin, or to Rome. The scripture tells us that he worked primarily with unschooled and ordinary men. But those men and those women, and women were the first to preach the gospel, they turned the world upside down. How could it be that today, I mean, we have candidates making promises. We have candidates saying, this is who I am, believe in me, and then... <clears throat> Can we follow them? Can we believe them? Who are they really? Are they trustworthy? How could Jesus have pulled this off? And today, 2.3 billion people follow him. Reason with me. The existence of creation and everything about your Savior. You will have trouble. But don't let your heart be troubled. There's no better way there's no better way to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you than to actually have that hope. Because everybody hopes. And it's really good when you and I walk in this world as I have done and will do. Even in my future, I'm going to find some things and some people that I hope in that let me down. 
that wear out and give out, that fade away, that go away, that don't leave me completely satisfied. And then I'm left with what is my foundational hope, what's the deeper hope. And Jesus taught. He taught that there's this love. Love of the Father that is so great that you can know that it's real. If we would play that video of a father and a little baby. Watch this little munchkin. Look at that father. I've raised three. Susan and I fight, even to this day, if you bring it up. We fight over how many diapers I changed. There's a great discrepancy. But she'll tell you that as a father, there's been three. That when they were that age and in that range, in the wee hours of sleep-deprivated nights, I've held them. Coral Gables, Florida. Rancho Bernardo, California. And out of the reservoir of Brandon. Jesus, He taught that there's a love. And there's a rest. That it delights the Father. And just as real as that baby is resting, the Father's love through Jesus wants to be demonstrated to where you know it's true. Where it's an experiential part of your life. Where weary and heavy laden people who are anxious and troubled about many things can rest. To know that they're loved. To know that there's somebody that they can hope in. Come, let us reason together. There's a peace that I know. You know, sometimes I worship and sometimes I doubt. But I'm invited to enter in that even my doubts can be redeemed. Even my doubts can vanish in the arms of a father. And Jesus said this, that you and I are to know the father's voice. And that no one can pluck us out of His hand. That's a security. I pray it would be real for you. Would you pray with me?